Hi everyone, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast, where we interview teachers, scientists, philosophers, authors, and practitioners to explore the art and science of meditation. Today, I'm delighted to share with you my interview with philosopher and longtime meditation practitioner, Brad Kirshner. So I've known Brad for about six years. He's a good friend of mine. And on today's show, we explore his story as it relates to being a meditation, a longtime meditation practitioner. And we have a fascinating discussion around this basic question. When might it be a good time to step away from meditation? And then the follow-up question, and this is really where we kind of spend the most time, if you've taken some time off when is the right time to start meditating again and why? So Brad explored these questions himself in depth and he shares how meditation in the absence thereof affects him as a father, a husband, a professional and in all facets of his life. I think you're gonna find it really interesting. So without further ado, let's jump in to this interview with Brad Kirshner. Brad, welcome to the show. I am so happy to have you on here. Morgan, thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it. Awesome. And everyone, just a quick background here. I've known Brad for about six years. He recently moved to North Carolina from Jamaica. Well, you weren't living in Jamaica Plain. You were living close to me, though, here in Jamaica Plain. Mm -hmm. And Brad and I have been in a men's group together for many years, and we've done, uh, we recently did a weekend retreat together and have just gotten closer. And it occurred to me, I would really love to have Brad on the show because he's a fellow seeker, he's a fellow meditator, and I know he's done a lot of deep meditation practice and a lot of deep spiritual work. So that's the context for the show. And Brad, I'd love to just start at the start, man. Can you? Can you tell us a little bit about how did you get started on the path? Yeah, it started pretty early in the sense that, you know, thinking back to when I was a teenager, I was, I was brought in to religion through my family. Uh, my father, my grandfather, my aunt, my uncle were all ministers um, mm. in different denominations. And I sort of had a little minister in me from the beginning. But by the time I was like in middle school, I really started to see through the sort of traditional religious structures that I had been mm. exposed to, and it j I just wasn't buying it. You know, I just, I just, I just wasn't buying those those mythic slash even modernist interpretations of of spirit. Yeah. Um, so it was really just, you know, the way I see that now was I was lucky enough to kind of enter into a kind of postmodern, postconventional type of thinking as a teenager, where I was just like hyper rational. And would get into debates with my dad about philosophy and religion, mm. um, and was lucky enough to have a, have a dad who just really respected that um, and didn't, you know, didn't didn't push me even when he began to sense that I was moving in a direction that was that was a little bit, you know, beyond where he was at, or he just wasn't really understanding where I was coming from. He could he could right. respect it. Um, so you know, I got to college and it was just too easy. You know, I was getting A's in every class and. You know, some things were interesting, but just not enough. So I decided to, to leave. Um, mm -hmm. I dropped out of college after two years and just went to Europe 
bounced around for a couple months, and that was a really pivotal point in my life because up to that point, I just hadn't really been exposed to too much um, direct guidance or wisdom. I didn't really have any great mentors. I wasn't really reading a lot yet. Um, and while I was traveling, I met a man who was actually uh, an openly gay man from Australia who had lived in India for a long time. Mm. Um, and that was all new to me, you know, and he also, he was, he was vegan for a while and was vegetarian when I met him. And I was just so hungry, so thirsty for knowledge and for guidance right, as, a, right. as a 19 year old. Yes. Um, and was just really traveled with him for two weeks, just asking tons of questions, writing down books to read, you know, thinking about food in new ways, thinking about yoga and meditation really for the first times and just had this deep intuition of, of, of resonance that, you know, this, mm. that there were all these potential pathways that I could take to channel like the energy and the frustration that I was experiencing. So when I got back to, to the States, um, you know, I just really, I remember like going back to my apartment with my old roommates and everything was just different. Like I just mm -hmm. couldn't relate to them anymore. I just went online and just ordered tons of books and would just sit in my room, like reading for like weeks and try wow. you know, and like try to start meditating. You know, and I couldn't really do it. I remember first, like I'd sit for five minutes and then just look around and just be like, what, what, what am I doing? You know, I guess I have yeah. to be reading. Yeah. But that was like, you know, 20 years old, moving back to Ohio and it just wasn't, my old reality was just gone. So I, so then I moved to New York city and, uh, I had some, some old, some friends of mine from high school who had become artists in New York city, lived there for a little while, you know, my friends there were getting into Zen Buddhism and we started sitting together. That was my first experience of sort of a meditative community. We were just reading about Zen and um, meditating together a lot. But then, you know, long story short, ended up moving back to Ohio to finish school. Mm. Um, and for those two years of finishing college, you know, this is so I'm like 21, 22 years old. I really took on the sort of persona of like a young Zen monk. And uh, for those two years, you know, I was living with my mom. I was meditating two to three hours a day, like every day for those two years, pretty much. Wow. Just on my own, you know, no teacher. Yeah, I didn't really, yeah. I didn't seek any teachers. I didn't seek any groups. I was just studying philosophy and religion in school, ended up with a philosophy degree for undergrad, and just really felt like I was getting a direct transmission from, from the books that I was reading. You know, I, mm. I came across Ken Wilber at one point just uh, actually randomly in a bookstore. I was literally just so hungry. I would just go to bookstores and look at the religion, philosophy, spirituality sections. And when I first saw, um, I saw a theory of everything and a brief history of everything, you know, next to each other on a bookshelf. Mm -hmm. And there was just something about it. I was just like, this guy, this guy did some work, you know, like yeah. really, yeah. I could just tell just by honestly, just by looking at his picture, I was like, whoa, I need to read this guy. Yeah. So over the course of the next few years, I um, I literally read everything Ken Wilber ever wrote. I went and I looked at, you know, a lot of the things that he refers to. And I got those books and read as much of those as I could, especially the Buddhist um, ones. Yeah. Um, I moved to San Francisco. And because some of my friends who had previously lived in New York had ended up moving to San Francisco. So I moved there to live with them. And uh, again, so this is right. Right after you graduated? So after I graduated, so this is 2004, so I'm like 24, and yeah, in San Francisco with the same friends who were practitioners and met a really awesome Zen Buddhist teacher who just had a bookshop in the Mission, 
and uh, just had Saturday morning, three hour sits every Saturday morning. And we mm. would go, we would go to his bookshop and meditate for three hours and then go out to breakfast. And I did that every Saturday for, for the year that I was there in San Francisco. Um, yeah. had a very awesome community but again didn't seek like buddhist centers didn't seek retreats didn't seek teachers with names i was just like totally like uh i was sufficient to myself you know yeah and right. uh, so so i have a hmm? question about that. yeah um so there must have been a point where you felt like the practice was um it went from that moment where you described where you were just kind of looking around and you're like what the hell am i doing to obviously there was a a transition where some some deepening happened and the practice started to nourish you and you and that in my experience that often happens like when the penny drops and you you actually have an experience Mm -hmm. of a direct experience of depth or maybe it's like inner stillness or silence. But then, so what? Because obviously, as you're you're talking about this, something was fueling. Yeah, like what your, were my breakthroughs? Yeah, well, during what, that time. Yeah, there must have been something that was. Yeah. Like yeah, what happened? Yeah. Or, or, or were there any kind of major? Yeah. Uh, transitions in that time, like in, inner. Yeah. Or what you know, were some of the? Yeah. Well, it was very yeah. gradual. I mean, the way I can kind of go back. And reinterpret it now is um, I feel like I, I I had a very highly developed cognitive line, mm-hmm. and like I really under I felt like I really understood everything I was reading. Yeah. Um. So like when I read Krishnamurti, like I got a download from Krishnamurti, yeah. and when when I look yeah. up in the book, like I'm I'm gone, you know. Yeah. Like I'm I'm just, it's just space. Yeah. You know, and like I, I when I started reading Wilbur. Like I, I, it just clicked. It was like I wrote this. Like this was the book that I was gonna write. You know, I, I didn't know how I even could be that grandiose, but it was just like this obvious intuition of just like <laughs> this is my this is my higher mind channeled through another yeah. person. Yeah. Um, and I'm just gonna like totally download this. Yeah. Um, so it's just it's like it everything that I read it just was like an update to my operating system. You know. Yeah. And I would carry that with me. Like I remember at that time, young twenties. And my friend, my friends were artists, and they were kind of beatnik, like poets, but like a later generation kind of yeah. aesthetic and, and and persona. And we're into Zen largely for the aesthetic of I think now looking back on it because I can see that they didn't really stick with it or or take it where I took it. But at that time, yeah. I was trying to explain to them just how, like, when I would walk around the city by myself, what that was like, like how that was perfection you know mm-hmm. how, how that was actually like i would have the experience of just walking around san francisco knowing that it would be impossible to be more awake than that sitting on a cushion mm. you know and they were like yeah. obsessed with zazen you know it's so like sitting zazen we would sit zazen i'm still sitting zazen for like hour at least an hour a day but it, there became less of a distinction between like when i was sitting and when i wasn't sitting yeah um, and i was well, that- just, you know yeah, I was just, I was a really, I mean, in my young 20s, I really felt like I was just in a place where there wasn't much else for me to go. Yeah. Um, and I was okay. living a very simple, very simple life. Uh, Sounds like working it. Working as can a preschool you... teacher, actually. Yeah. All right. Well, so backing up just a second, can you just define for people what Zazen is? Yeah, Zazen is, is just sitting meditation in the Zen tradition um, and the way that it's 
taught typically, um, you know, it can start really simple, just basic, like shamatha breathing, like follow your breath or count your breath. Yeah. And some people just stick with that forever. Like you can literally just, just count your breaths, you know, and just yeah. staying present. Um, yeah. And in a short amount of time, for me, it became, I dropped the counting and I dropped any sort of particular object. And I, what, the way I interpreted Zazen before too long was really just holding open mind, you know, yeah. like being just fully present for whatever arose yeah. um, and really just practicing mindfulness of awareness itself yeah. and just not allowing the mind to wander off and just keeping the still point, but with no particular object, like not necessarily the breath, even if you're aware of the breath, not necessarily the sensations of the body even though those are arising and passing away, but just literally like watching your mind. Yeah. I, yes. So that's how I, I practiced for those, for those early years. Got it. But then, so like, so I was just working as a preschool teacher in San Francisco, feeling pretty content and basically, but I had all this, there was a lot I wanted to do in terms of helping to explain all that I was experiencing and all that I was reading. So I decided yeah. to get a doctorate in religious studies. I got accepted to the to the University of Chicago um, and mm -hmm. moved to Chicago 2005 to start that program. Met uh, the woman who is now my wife, like within a month of, of moving to Chicago. Wow. Uh, she was studying Tibetan and Sanskrit um, and, 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 and Buddhism as well. But my, so I ended up, we only, and we ended up only spending two years in Chicago. Both of us could have finished and gotten PhDs in religious studies there. But after two years, I really just realized that that container of academia was not going to hold the practice-based, you know, revelation-based, realization-based religion that I was that mm. I was trying to live and share and talk about. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, it just wasn't a good container for me. It, it was not responsive to my needs as a as a growing person. Um, and, yeah. And and mind. So I really just wanted to move back to San Francisco. Um, I convinced Simone to come with me and just went back to teaching. So then for mm -hmm. the next four years was teaching um, kindergarten and preschool again and just back to sitting again. And then some transition happened in terms of like a big life shift is having children. And yes. I, I have one child. But uh, so those next four years, you know, my, my Simone and I had a daughter and that just changes everything. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I also, well, one thing I skipped too, though, I did actually, actually right before I moved to Chicago, I did do a 10-day silent Vipassana retreat. Ah, yes. And then, so that was like the first real intensive retreat that I did. Yeah. And I ended up doing, over the next years, I did do 10 of those. So I did like mm. 10 10-day 10 silent retreats. Yes. Um, and those were very transformative because just, uh, they being, had, oh, yeah. You know, it's one thing to just sit an hour or so a day and then walk down the street, you know, being happy. But um, to really spend 10 solid days not speaking, not reading, um, really, literally just trying to meditate 24 hours a day and having the sort of space and guidance to do that was really was really helpful for me. It was also more embodied in the way that it was taught in that in that tradition, that Goenka tradition. From, yeah, uh, is um, it's very embodied, and they're sort of asking you to really stay with your body sensations until they just you know vanish and sort of evaporate yeah. and dissolve. Yeah, and I did. I never was really good at completely following their instructions because I was just already so rooted in zazen that I could kind of. I felt like I I could kind of dissolve my bodily sensations, you know, 
easy enough on my own that I didn't need to go at the pace that that course yeah. was out for beginners. Yeah. But but I did stay with it more than I normally would, and I felt like I was able to have a more of like a whole body, just opening in a way of just like really yeah. being in touch with every particle of my body and going through like trying to feel my body from the inside, like mindfulness of my actual brain, my spine, like my internal organs. Like I was really able to kind of like know and sort of dissolve my body with my own mind, like inside and yes. out. And that was an interesting yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's, you know, but then, so then, so then about, um, yeah, six years ago, you know, um, moved to Boston. My daughter was one and a half. And uh, I had decided to get a doctorate in education this time. I sort of, I have, you know, I was in the doctor program for religion. That wasn't really the path. Um, went back to teaching, but still like so much of my internal and relational life was centered around spirituality and religion and philosophy that actually just being a preschool teacher was also like felt like it was never really the container yeah. that I needed, even though I, I sort of had this idealized vision of like, oh, I can just be like, in my mind, it was sort of like my own version of the 10th ox herding picture where like the jolly man just comes back to market and like there's nothing else to do except just live a simple life and be and mm. happy. Um, yeah. But I was sort of those, premature those are, in that. The, the Zen pictures. Yeah. Right? So the, in Zen, yeah. there's this notion of like these 10 stages of the path and they're all represented by different pictures. And, you know, the the last one is just like a happy man going back to the marketplace sort of like mm -hmm. he's been through, you know, he went through the seclusion. He went through, you know, all the different stages of awakening and then like, what else is there to do? But just, but just live, you know? Right. And in my, I mean, I was very, you know, premature in my attempt to embody that. But in my mind, that's what I was trying to do by being a preschool kindergarten teacher, which is like, okay, what's the simplest, happiest, most positive, like do no harm, joyful profession, you know? And I, yeah, I just love yeah. being with kids I always have. But still it was like, okay, that, that wasn't really feeding my mind, you know, and, and my sort of cognitive line of development. So yeah, I figured I'd yeah. try to bring these two things together with a doctor in education, moved to Boston, doctoral program at Boston College, which I'm now finishing my dissertation for. And another shift in practice happened in terms of like, I, I started sitting less, you know, definitely was sitting on the cushion less, met some Mahamudra practitioners and teachers in Boston. Mm. And that was interesting. And I'm not sure if I fully am far enough away from it to really have a good 2020 hindsight on it yet. But um, the Mahamudra teachings, you know, in my understanding, do align with Zen to some degree. I mean, you're talking about Mahayana and, 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 and you're talking about really being awake to awareness itself, to consciousness itself, to the sort of interpenetration of, of, of mind and matter and the sort of psychophysical nature of reality um, and going through stages of, you know, being aware of that, embodying that, witnessing that, and then kind of like poof, like releasing into that and sort of being, yeah. being that reality. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's what I was always doing in Zen was just in Zazen, like actually just being, being awake and just yeah. being as non-dual you know as, as i could yeah you know open out into um but mahamudra and the teachers that were there in boston were were much more detailed and instructive and pointing out much more clearly like you know sort of fine-tuning the different levels that i felt like i had been intuiting or jumping around in but not really understanding where i was 
Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same yeah. time, interestingly, you know, I became close friends with somebody who was actually studying to become a Mahamudra teacher. And we became good friends. And we went Th- through a kind this of... This is John Churchill. No, this is actually... Different. So John and I did become friends. Um, yeah. And I wasn't going to make names because uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say. Oh, okay. Yeah, but right, yeah, yeah, but actually thinking about Fede, you know, so so my yes, one a friend it. of mine was actually, you know, he was actually chosen to become a teacher in in a very legitimate lineage of Mahamudra practice. Yeah. Um, but he and I were also in you know a circle of friends which you and I shared, where there were you know different spiritual teachers. Yeah. And it was sort of I felt like for us as a group. Over this period of time, we were sort of learning about the, you know, and like various different groups throughout space and time have learned the same lesson that I think we learned, which is basically the pitfalls of the guru relationship, pitfalls of spiritual teachers and how you can have, and again, like there's so many examples, I just don't even really need to name any. How can you have a spiritual teacher who it, it, it isn't just a charlatan, right? Isn't just making it up, is, ac- is actually having some significant realization or state and or stage development, and yet, you know, doing and saying things that at some point in time, people begin to realize are not good, right? right. Are not virtuous and are hurtful and are causing yeah. suffering for people. I mean, just in this past year, the a very uh, well-respected Tibetan teacher, the, um, the guy who wrote the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, has like all these scandals have come out about him, and I, I was yeah. shocked by that. And, that like, and that's been slowly kind of building with him. Yeah, yeah, which I wasn't aware of. But it's like yeah. every lineage has yeah. people like this who just end up being, you know, apparently not good in some way. <laughs> And yeah. um, yes. up in some ways, and not owning yes. it. Worst of all, like yeah. not not fully seeing it, being blind, yeah. having this interesting shadow that yeah. really affects people. And I think yeah. self and and others in this in this group that that uh, you and I were in, people were really trying to come to grips with this. Totally. One way that I processed that was was really downplaying the significance of meditation, downplaying the significance of even realization of, of, of state development or, or, or stage development. I don't, we don't, I don't know how much we can, we don't need to talk about um, states and stages for people who are interested. They should check out a recent book that came out called The Religion of Tomorrow by Ken Wilber really kind of breaks down the difference between states and stages. Yes, um, and, mm-hmm. and another caveat I did, uh, everyone, there's a whole... Uh, two episode series I did on this with a gentleman named Ted Saad where we kind of went in depth into states and stages and oh did you so guys cool yeah, I should listen to it, that I haven't heard it, it's a great show and and Ted just kind of shares his knowledge and I'll hook that up in the show notes everybody so you'll be able to refer to this and it you know like Brad Ted was uh, in deeply influenced by the work of the philosopher Ken Wilber yeah so Please go on. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, part of my spiritual life over these these past five, six years has been really finding my place of, of balance and a place to move forward from Yeah. in light of really, you know, doing some deep discernment about 
how to tease apart and understand you know, the different aspects of human development that can help make sense of how and why people can, you know, go really far along the spiritual path in any given tradition and yet still do things that that basically any sort of reasonable community of people would say, like, that was not a good thing to do. Right. Um, and and, and it, just, it just, it 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 begs the question, what is the significance, if any, of awakening if these people are actually awakened right and yeah would, what's yeah. yes yeah it's questions of moral lines of development and also as you've been talking about embodied integrated kind of presence related yeah. to one's state development and yeah yeah uh, yeah. I, yeah go ahead yeah well so so for me i mean it was just seeing more and more people who were really playing this out in terms of playing out a hyper focus on spiritual realization and in one way or another falling short in terms of like my ideal of just like how I want to be as a, as a person in the world just really made it crystal clear to me, even though I mean it not, I don't think I was ever greatly confused about it, but it just really brought to light that it is my sort of existential fundamental imperative, you know, that I always need to be able to make, a judgment about the virtue of something or the significance of something. Um, and that's not directly tied in any way to my state stage development, even, you know, like no matter what sort of experiences I have on or off the cushion, no matter how awake I think I am, no matter how light and open I feel, no matter how continuously I can maintain awareness of awareness itself, there's something that I understand as goodness and virtue that is not simply a a manifestation of that that state stage of like where I'm at in terms of like the opening of the aperture of my consciousness. You know, like yeah. there's something and there's actually some like being how I am in the world, how I talk to people, how I listen to people, how I make decisions, how I spend my money, how I engage issues such as race and class and inequality and social justice, these things, you know, are firmly and clearly more important to me than where I'm at in terms of my spiritual awakening, mm-hmm. right? And it's, and it's like, I think me, myself, like many people coming into spirituality, we fall into some version of the growth to goodness assumption, which is that if you're meditating a lot, if you're growing spiritually you're also growing towards goodness and you will become a better and better person and you'll be kinder and you'll be you know the more awakened you become the better you will be and i think that there is it's like there's the potential for a positive relationship between those things but it's not necessary you know like yeah and it's not it's like awakening is 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 neither necessary nor sufficient for being a good person yeah. And it's important as people that we are clear that being a good person is more important than how awake we are, hmm. right? And just being really clear about that. So for me, fully embracing my role as an educator, I've become a school leader in the past four years. The work I'm doing in the world with children and families and primarily with my own family and secondarily with my friends, like it's just so clear to me in like a full-hearted way that who I am as a parent Yeah is so much more important than 
what state I'm in or what stage I'm at, you know? And like earlier in life, before I had kids and before I really was, was in a vocational situation that was really affecting a lot of people, I was able to just focus on my own mind, right? Like that's what I was doing for years, was just paying attention to my mind. And yeah. that facilitated a process that I think was good for me and it was liberating to some extent. But after having done that, and I'm so, I feel really grateful that I was able to intensely focus on that while I was young and single. Yeah. Um, because now I'm so enmeshed in a world of responsibilities that I'm, I'm so, like, I have to be, I have to have the capacity to be generous with those responsibilities and responsible with those responsibilities. And I feel like I'm able to do that in a way that I otherwise wouldn't if I didn't have those years of meditation practice. But I'm also able to clearly distinguish, you know, like what, what my priorities are, basically. And frankly, my priority is no longer meditation, you know. And yeah. for the last few years, I haven't really been sitting that much. So but one thing I'm sitting with now, it was sort of like when you first asked me if I wanted to, to do a talk, the first thought that came to me was, oh, like we should talk about the reintegration of meditation practice after letting it go, you know, yeah. and like being on a plateau. And I feel like yeah. for years now, as I've been dealing with just my psychology more and my own shortcomings as a parent and as a husband um, and as just a person in the world, I've sort of plateaued in terms of my state stage consciousness while cultivating like a lot of inner like background stuff. Um, and I think I'm a healthier and fuller person now, but at the same time, I'm realizing like, well, I'm not actually maintaining awareness of awareness as much as I used to, Yeah, you know, and, and I'm maybe, and like, I'm actually, and I'm losing my temper with my daughter more than I'd like to, Yeah, you know, and, and, and I can kind of, you can take a certain sort of, uh, being for granted and, and what I'm trying to be really like brutally honest with myself about now is trying to understand like how have I regressed or what's the nature of the plateau that I'm yeah. on and what needs to happen for me to continue to, you know, just flower as, as a person. Yeah. And I'm realizing yes. that it's time for me to get back on the cushion. For me, it was such a given before of like the, the intensity of it and that, you know, the hours a day and the, it was a imperative that I had to do that. Yeah. And I lost that sort of motivation. And now I'm, I'm sort of gently reintegrating that motivation to continue on the path, but in like a very different stage of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. I, I have a question just mm -hmm. backing up a little bit. When you said, you said you had no doubt that all those years of meditation have actually helped you be a better parent, helped you be a better person, helped you live the life of a family man and mm -hmm. with enmeshed in all the responsibilities that you were describing how how would you say that's the case and mm -hmm. what yeah I, i'm curious because yeah. yeah we're yeah go ahead well yeah no it is it is an interesting question because in a way there there's a tension between the two things that i'm that i'm saying or claiming right on one hand it's sort of of, you know, realizing that you can devote yourself to spiritual awakening and meditation and still have huge blind spots or undone shadow work to do and really still cause suffering for people. And as we've seen with spiritual teachers, are so recognizing that and yet still feeling that there is some sort of positive 
correlation or at least the potential for a positive correlation between spiritual practice and just like being competent and capable and being a good person in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that for many, many people, you know, it's, it's not that I certainly don't want to say that just because there are many examples of people who have gone really far in their spiritual line of development and are really lacking in other lines of development, that doesn't mean that there aren't also many, many, probably more people for whom the spiritual path is overall helpful and, and is and, and does actually have a sort of positive evolutionary pull you know, upward or forward, right. I think, in other lines. And I, I feel like right. that, that's been my experience. Like one, one way that, w- w- one of Wilbur's sort of hypotheses is that the cognitive line of development is, um, you know, sort of necessary but not sufficient for other lines of development, right? So yeah. it, it, it's, it's much more likely that you'll be highly developed cognitively and lower developed in other areas of your life, say emotionally or interpersonally, yeah. um, than vice versa. Because if you don't have that cognitive foundation as a bedrock, it's going to be hard for you to take the perspective necessary to really be a full and embodied person in other ways. Yeah. Um, and I, and I feel like for me, there was, there's such a, I mean, I, I've never really thought about it like this before, but there was, there's such a close sort of dialectical relationship between my cognitive development and my spiritual development that I think as I sort of went full steam ahead in both of those areas through a lot of reading and a lot of meditation, other parts of me were pulled up as well, partly because so much of what I was reading um, and learning about did incorporate ethics and did incorporate notions of compassion, right? And interdependence and interbeing. And there are all these ideals that are part and parcel of the Buddhist framework, which is mostly what I was operating in, that do sort of, you know, those were a part of what I was trying to embody the whole time, you know? Yeah. But, but, but I think what I've realized though, is as I've actually been, as I stopped sitting so much and started just really focusing on my relationships and my responsibilities and the way I was showing up in the world and my vocation, it allowed those sort of ideals of compassion and empathy and selflessness and interbeing. It, it allowed me to really pay more attention to those things Mm. Um, because I was more able to see sort of how, how I wasn't living those things. Yes. Um, but it, I did definitely still feel like I was pulled upward overall as a human being by, by my intensive meditation practice for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That makes sense. I mean, make all, all of it makes sense. I think, I think an interesting, just general comment that I'm sure everyone's thinking about is or at least reflecting on is the assumption and this is kind of under everything you're saying just the assumption that if i do meditation if i do spiritual practice i'm going to be a better person mm-hmm. and, you know that's that's in a lot of ways that's just this fundamental assumption that we all have no matter what mm-hmm. and i think you know, everything you're saying is, you know, you're like, you're saying, yeah, that's possible, but we can't ever take that for granted. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just it. It's not taking it for granted. It's being explicit and concerted and earnest about it and intentional about it and honest yeah. with yourself about how you're not. And I think for some people, maybe that's hard because it's just like, especially when you're, you want to see yourself as a spiritual person and there's a lot of work involved in seeing objectifying and reintegrating the parts of yourself that are not developed you know yeah 
Yeah, because we all are really like motley mixes of sub-personalities and wounding and trauma. And, you know, th there's just a lot going on in every person. It's so, it's so amazing, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, no, it's like know, when you yeah. start to look at the landscape yeah. of one's yeah. own internal kind of world and yeah. the turns that you take, forget a day, just an hour. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're all, all of us mostly, all over the map in, in a lot of ways. And then, you know, how, how conscious am I? How conscious are you of all of that? And then like, what, you know, and then what, and what, what's the frame also in which you're conscious of it? There's like so, so much, you know, and none of us are kind of, none of us really have, you kind of have this ideal of a sort of perfect straight line equilibrium that meditation is going to give you. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's never been my experience. And I think I, on the path you learn, all right, that's not really the point here mm -hmm. at all. Part of the point is just to begin to slowly awaken to who I am uh, and all of it. Right? Yeah, warts and all. To, uh, totally. Yeah. And yeah, then, which is hard, yeah. you know, which is hard, which is why, oh. and it helps though. And one of the reasons why I appreciate Wilbur and some other sort of more psychological like integrations of Western psychology and Eastern spirituality is yeah. it helps to have a framework within which you can understand your own experience that's broad and comprehensive enough to make room for all the, the pitfalls and the struggles and the, yeah. the imperfections, you know, yeah. and some I, notions of spiritual awakening are, are just too simple and they're not explanatory yeah. enough, you know, like Zen. I mean, it's just not, explanatory enough you know and i think yes. a lot of people actually suffer through through a long time of just trying to do something like zazen but not really having a framework to understand their shadow or their anger or their you know the deal with their past trauma or even yeah. just relationship stuff you know there's so many different kinds of work that we need to be doing um so i really appreciate you know having having that and i think it's important to to have both yeah, I guess like in just like with anything else in life, the spiritual path can give you a way to avoid a lot, mm. you know? Mm. I, I think like having a map is a really good thing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's just no matter where you are, on the path or off the path, it's very easy to get lost. Yeah. And I, yeah, so I, I agree with you. Yeah, and if you don't, you know, if you don't... um have a strong practice or background of practice, then, you know, maybe you're more likely to over reify the map um, and fall into some, yeah. some, some pitfalls there. And, you know, but that's still no number of examples of that mean that the map is in itself a bad thing. Like, you know, like they sort of say, everyone's a philosopher. Some are just better than others. You know, everyone has a map. It's mm. just, you know, and, and yeah, part of the work is, is not reifying it, not getting stuck in it, you know. And and the deeper you go in your practice and your awareness of awareness and becoming construct aware of your own mind's operations and not identifying with your thoughts, not identifying with anything that's coming up that passes in time and space um, helps. Like, so that's how the two can kind of work together. Like, you keep expanding your map, but you also keep expanding your identity so that you're not sort of caught up in making too much of any thoughts that arise in conjunction with any particular map. 
So tell me a little bit more about how are you thinking about this context of coming back to the cushion? Like what was the impetus or what is the impetus for you kind of really saying, all right, it's time. Was it, is it really, I guess you were saying a lot of it is seeing some of the things coming up in your family life, like the anger. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Totally. I think, you know, I being in the field of education, you know, and I, I really, I really aspire toward greatness in parenting yeah. and, uh, and in just, just helping other people develop. And I, but parenting has been the biggest ass kicker and the most painful mirror. Yeah. And, and it's just been interesting for me that, you know, for, I don't know if other people experience this, but my daughter triggers me more than any other human being ever has. Mm. And I don't know what's going on there cosmically or karmically, but the person for whom I most want to show up for as an awakened, kind, generous human being is the person I most get triggered by, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's part of it. But that all like, there's other work that has to go on there too, other than just meditation. But I, I really just feel like the time is, is right, you know? And, and it's just, it's just a noticing of, you know, for me, the transition to de-emphasizing sitting on a cushion came from the feeling that I could maintain awareness of awareness throughout most of the time, like most of my life. Yeah. Um, and then just sort of notice, and then when it would get shakier, when then I, when I would notice that I wasn't maintaining it anymore, I could easily just sort of not make a big deal of it, especially with these other things we've been talking about with really de-emphasizing awakening and really emphasizing being in the world, emphasizing ethics, emphasize, mm. emphasizing, you know, like the responsibility to others and then not caring as much whether or not I'm maintaining my sort of opened, opened awareness and sort of feeling, feeling myself as the whole of the world or yeah. whatever space that I'm in, like I sort of got used to feeling the wholeness of the space that I'm in. Yeah. Um, and then when that's, I feel like that started becoming more and more spotty, but then it's like, I didn't care enough anymore. And now just through like, really just through thinking it through and through coming to terms with that, it's just like, I'm just realizing now, like, no, actually I, like I'm not as open as much as I used to be. And um, just recognizing that. And, and one thing that, like they teach in uh, the Mahamudra teachers that I've had have, have emphasized, you know, and really emphasizing that daily practice is still very important. And one reason is, is that no matter how awake you are, even if you, you know, are, are open to awareness itself and have, a, you know, a deep awakening experience, concentration and the cultivation of samadhi concentration um, are things that need to continue to be practiced. You know, yeah. because that will fade. Like your ability to just have a really focused, concentrated, laser pinpointed mind will fade if you don't continue to cultivate and practice it. And I've just kind of noticed in myself that I'm just I feel less I feel less laser like lately. Yeah. Um so it's you know, and, and honestly just I've taken on so much responsibility in work and family that it's hard for me to even see how to structure my day the way that I used to in terms yeah. of sitting so much. So it's more of a logistical struggle when you are an active professional and family man. But yeah. But that is my charge for for these for these coming years is to, yeah. is to reintegrate the sort of seriousness of, you know, re cultivating and honing that laser like focus and concentration and intentionally, you know, opening up um, to awareness itself 
as 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 much as I can, and then having a place, you know, from which I can I can step off of the cushion. Um, yeah, just a much more like grounded, grounded and like solidified way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. After living in the ashram for fifteen years and meditating two hours a day every day without fail for mm-hmm. that and you know and, and like you doing countless intensive retreats mm-hmm. the when my community dissolved you know i definitely i took a big long break for different reasons obviously part of it was just i needed space mm-hmm. from that whole context and the meditation was so like fundamentally a part of it Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it's been on and off over the last couple of years, but increasingly on. And a lot of it, similarly, like over time, I've come to appreciate I can't really take this for granted. No matter the depth of my awakening, my my uh, appreciation for depth, my appreciation for non-duality and, and experience and access to that, there's no question that I, I'm just better all around. Mm-hmm. Like my my and and my heart is open when mm-hmm. I do. Even you know, right now for me, it tends to be about thirty minutes in the morning. It's kind of night and day. Yeah, I, you know, similar to you, I think I, I had to come back to it. You know, I needed I needed that time away, and I needed to come back. I had to come back on my own terms, almost, and uh, yeah, I don't mm, regret it yeah. at all. You know, the time no. off. Yeah, no, it's all it's all part of the process, man. Yeah, there are, there's so many, just just so many myriad factors that are going on right now, you know, and are playing out in all totally. of our lives. All the karmic propensities, all the all the interdependent, you know factors that are just playing out all the energies at play through us and around us and it's just like it's also learning to to ride those waves just as mindfully as you can you know and not mindful of any particular object but just mindful of the space in which everything is is happening and knowing on a deep level that it's all it's all okay yeah it's all yeah oh absolutely absolutely and coming back to just the love like it's it's all permeated by by just uh you know a a saturated you know loving kindness yeah uh and you know we can we can embody that even when we you know like are messing up as as parents or whatever you know and it is it's I don't know. It's just for me, it's also just de-emphasizing my own practices also helped me just appreciate, you know, those, I think, more important aspects of awakening, which really are about like love and connection and, and yeah. feeling, feeling wholeness and oneness with all other things and actually helping other people to feel that too. You yeah. Know, it's all about. Definitely. So, yeah. And also as we're talking, I think something comes up for me a lot is the question of genuine independence on the path and for me after being in a guru centric model for years that's an important theme for me and kind of reintegrating my practice 
on my own. Oh, I, I can't, yeah, I guess on my own terms is, I don't know how else to say it. That's been really important. I feel like when you're talking about like riding the waves and it being part of a process in my own life, I can, you know, there's just been deeper layers of ownership in my own process. Mm-hmm. And that's like a, it's just another thing I've seen you can't really take for granted. You know, mm-hmm. the questions that kind of guide you, those are, those are your questions. They're my questions. You know, they're really very particular to each of us. And mm-hmm. it's true. There's a certain sort of, uh, sanctimonious it's just there's there's something really sacred about each each person's path you know and i feel like that's one thing i've actually was lucky to to not to 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 feel that from the beginning that i was just on my own path um you know sometimes i've wondered if there was like what was really going on there was i averse to taking on a teacher for some reason or is there something undeveloped about my like a second person relationship with god you know yeah but but uh it's been really empowering for me yeah. not to not have a mediated experience through through a guru. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, there's not much more to say after you get to to love is everything, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I agree, man. So do you have any like prayer to mention to your practice? <laughs> I don't, you know, I mean, that's something that really, you know, again, in the way that uh, that integral theory breaks it down, you can sort of have, you can experience God or spirit, you know, in the first person, second person, or third person. And I, I've always resonated with the first person, um, which is just that direct realization that like, I, yeah. am, I am that, um, yeah. experiencing, experiencing, you know, the feeling of being that, being, being everything. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, in, in, in the sense that the third person is just sort of, a, for me, I have experienced it as just a, a sort of very slight shift on that same realization where it's like just feeling a oneness with, with, with the world. Yeah. Um, both the manifest world and then the, the, um, the non-manifest world. But yeah. uh, this, this notion of the second person of God, of having like an I-thou relationship or, you know, like has been, it was never came naturally to me. And one thing that was actually eye-opening was that I was curious about, I didn't realize before I started working a little bit with Mahamudra teachers, how much in the in many of the Tibetan traditions, they really incorporate deities. And like you actually, you know, I was instructed to really basically be asking, you know, the Buddhas and the deities for help. Like every time yeah. you start meditating, you're really calling yeah. forth the guides, you know, and you're and doing visualization of like doing a visualization of another being and then yeah. visualizing that being turning into a golden sphere of light and then visualizing that golden sphere of light dropping down through the top of your crown down into your body. Um, and I had never really done any visualization work or deity yoga work prior to, you know, fairly recently um, in, yeah. in that Tibetan lineage. And, and for me, I've I've uh, it was good for me to 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 do some of those practices um, because they never really came natural to me and I still don't yeah. really resonate with them as yeah. much as I do with just you know sitting just open eyes zazen or um, just you know doing awareness mindfulness of just like awareness of awareness itself practice yeah um, but so yeah for me that that that's sort of like my spiritual blind spot for whatever reason and maybe it's because of my 
you know, my, my whole early life being so dumped yeah. by Christianity. That's and what that, I was thinking. Yeah, right. and that sort of, that presumed sort of I-thou relationship with God and or Jesus and just that and falling flat in terms yeah. of like the ridiculousness of it from my <laughs> teenage rational mind. Yeah. It just like created like an allergy to that, you know, yeah. where it's just like yeah. there's this deep-rooted association between that sort of I-thou relationship and like mythical, traditional really immature relationships of spirit. Yeah. Well, yeah, that makes sense. And it's, it, that's cool to hear your experience with the Tibetan context. I tend to integrate both. I mean, like you, the, the large predominant body of my experience is free, you know, it's a free awareness, open awareness practice. Mm -hmm. And that's really been my primary relationship to practice and to spirit. And did you ever know Egal Harmelin? Um, the name sounds familiar, but I'm not he, he, picturing a face. Doesn't matter. So he, mm -hmm. he's a buddy of mine. He, he's Israeli, and he introduced me to this Hasidic practice called Hippodidut. And, and it's just this practice where you talk to, it's, you know, it's second face of God, I thou practice. And you just talk to God, and the instructions are very, very simple. It's just pour your heart out, whatever is there. And I think it was this Rabbi Nachman who developed it. And, you know, his instructions were so simple. He's like, look, even if you're doubting God, talk to God about that. You know, it, nothing's off the table mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're angry at God. Or you're, so I kind of like, I've been playing with that for the last four or five years and it's just developed and I've mm -hmm. integrated it into my my practice so I usually spend about 20 minutes of, in silence and about 10 minutes doing this kind of uh, out loud practice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and interestingly it's really in a, in a, in a powerful I mean it's always heart opening it, mm -hmm. it blasts my heart wide open but a lot of it is also just like I don't really have the sense of the other. I, I, I can't really differentiate who and what I'm talking about from, from my highest self. Like mm -hmm. I don't, there's no division there. And in a lot of the time, that's what I'm talking to God about. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really moving. And, and again, even using that word God, you know, I can't, that's the thing. I, it's hard for me to relate to god as an other outside mm. of myself you know that yeah. there's this higher self which is everything at the same time as much as it's me and that's that tends to be like what i explore in that prayer yeah and sitting in the presence of that and how do you live in a context where god's never separate from you God, I'm using that word in quotes. I mean, it's mm -hmm. such a loaded term, but like, mm -hmm. and that just, it blows me away mm -hmm. thinking and, and, and because it just collapses everything mm -hmm. in a way that med meditation does it, but and it's a completely yeah. different way. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't really, you know, worked, worked with that. But one, one, yeah. one, one thing it brings to mind for me, though, is actually, it may not seem obvious connection at first, but journaling. Because the you way know, that I think yeah. about journaling is it's really, which is not also not something I've done really consistently or a lot, but I have at different points of time. And I've thought about it as just stream of consciousness objectifying your own mind 
like getting it out there, whether you're speaking it or writing it down, you're just sort of witnessing the thoughts coming and you are making them object right away. So it's like mm. you don't have to identify with them anymore. Yeah. And just sort of like seeing seeing what comes up and just sort of playing with that. Um, but at the same time, like using that as a way to, to be always remembering and solidifying that that's like, that's not you. Like those are just thoughts, you know, yeah. it's really like, I, I, I see writing as a way of objectifying the yeah. sort of manifestations of mind Yeah, that, you know, could be potentially helpful in, in different ways, but it's still, it's not directed at this, this other, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, so it's different in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I mean, it, it's it, there's so many, again, it's like there's there's so many factors involved in what brings us all to even our own practices that uh, I feel like an, another part of the of the ripening or maturing on the path is actually being open to to other people's paths and not not in a sort of relativistic way, sort of like hey, we're all end up at the same place, but just. Um, not you know rushing to judgment about things or not being hypercritical about like well i'm not going to break down for you why like those second you know those like i thou practices are like not as effective in awakening you know or something like that like, yeah it's just the wrong yes. it's just this this the wrong step you know yeah, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just yeah. the wrong step but it's so hard you know and what's interesting too another thing that's such a part of our spiritual lives nowadays is you know, interactions through things like social media and in such a hyper, hyper um, argumentative and confrontational social reality of partisanship and ideological conflict and how to really, you know, inhabit less than full and awakened perspectives in some ways intentionally to make a point in a certain context that you on some level intuit will be you know, helpful for that context and potentially for the whole. Yeah. Even though that's like you're not necessarily speaking from your highest self perspective. You know, like if I'm yeah. if I'm engaging with Facebook, for instance, I'm not just always going on there saying like, God is love. Like I love everybody. Like let's all just be one. You know, even yeah. though like that, I can intuit that. I can experience. I can speak that as like a direct truth. Um, yeah, but that's not what's relevant for that context of conversation. Yeah, message to humanity: Jesus is coming. Yeah, yeah, or even just like yeah, like I am that or whatever. Yeah, it doesn't yes. you know? You're no, not necessarily course. just like we we have to be able to skillfully embody so many different perspectives, oh, so many different yeah. contexts, and being yeah. both construct aware and context aware as skillfully as we can. Um, is, is really like one way of describing like what our responsibility as as people really, but yeah. especially people who are aspiring towards towards any form of healthy spirituality in the 21st century. Like we have to, yeah. to engage different people from different places in different ways, you know, and not hold too tightly to any to anything really to yeah. be able to work with the situation. Yes, totally. You know. I think that's a, yeah, I mm-hmm. think that's a good, a good note to wrap up on. Cool, man. Yeah, so much. Uh, the, the, this was so nice, you know. Yeah. Nice. Well, it was 
really nice. It was good for us. I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed learning more about your story, but uh, it's good just to riff and, and talk about this. Yeah, I was, I'm realizing I, at the beginning, I was wondering, oh, maybe I'll tell my, uh, my India story because I had a big, I did have a big like awakening experience in India as well, but I didn't oh, wow. get to that. No, yeah, just, so that's for next, for next time. Next time, definitely, next man. Time. <laughs> yeah, well, there's so dude. much, man. And next time we're we're talking, I'd I'd love to just, uh, yeah, this made me think like I would love to hear more of your story, as yeah. well, always. Yes, and hopefully, you know, hopefully we'll, in person before too. Yeah, exactly. Find a way. That's what, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, let's formally just wrap up mm -hmm. the show. So mm -hmm. thank you for coming on and. I really appreciate it. Is is there a way like so do you have a website or is there You know a, what? Like, I was I started one at one point and didn't follow through with it. I do post things to Twitter related yeah. to mostly related to education. Yeah. Um and society, not so much to spirituality. Um yeah. people are welcome to follow me, uh Brad at Brad Kirshner on cool. Twitter where, where I, I, I try to, you know, on, on that note of like trying to really tune into what's most helpful for humanity at, you know, in the context of who I anticipate the audience being, you know, yeah. I'm always trying to post things on social media that I just think will be, will be helpful to people. Cool. Um, I'll, I'll connect that in the show notes too. Cool. Cool. Um, as well as all the books you mentioned, I'll, I'll link those up. The Religion of Tomorrow, and also some of the earlier works by Ken that you yeah, mentioned from, from the bookstore. Definitely. And uh, great. Well, th thank you for coming on the show, Brad. I really appreciate it. Morgan, thank you so much, man. Thank you for joining me for this interview with Brad Kirshner. If you want to learn more about Brad's work, or if you just want to be in touch with him, I have hooked up his Twitter address in the show notes, which you can find over at about meditation.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, I encourage you to please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. That is by far the biggest way to help us out. It's the best way to get our show in front of other listeners and other meditators. And also, while you're over at aboutmeditation.com, check out our courses. We have a number of courses for beginning and intermediate meditators. I think you'll enjoy them. So if you enjoy the podcast, you'll probably enjoy our courses. So check them out. You can find those over at aboutmeditation.com. And also, the One Mind podcast is part of the Podcastica network. Please check out Podcastica over at podcastica.com. And finally, let's end with a quote. And this quote is from Chagdud Tolku Rinpoche, and he says, When someone insults us, we usually dwell on it, asking ourselves, why did he say that to me? And on and on. It's as if somebody shoots an arrow at us, but it falls short. Focusing on the problem is like picking up the arrow and repeatedly stabbing ourselves with it, saying, he hurt me so much, I can't believe he did that. Instead, we can use the method of contemplation to think things through differently, to change our habit of reacting with anger. Imagine that someone insults you. Say to yourself, this person makes me angry, but what is this anger? It's one of the poisons of the mind that creates negative karma leading to intense suffering. 
Meeting anger with anger is like following a lunatic who jumps off a cliff. Do I have to go likewise? While it's crazy for him to act the way he does, it's even crazier for me to do the same. Thank you.